Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. For this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Larry Gamina, CEO of Ohio Living. Headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, Ohio Living operates 12 continuing care retirement communities throughout the Buckeye State. Like many other senior living providers across the U.S., Ohio Living is watching the COVID-19 pandemic unfold firsthand in its communities and among its residents and workers. The nonprofit believes it was among the first senior living organizations in Ohio to have a confirmed positive case of COVID-19 in late March. Ohio Living has also struggled with acquiring personal protective equipment, or PPE, for its workers, though those challenges have lessened in the weeks since. Still, Gamina has been outspoken about the need for more PPE to flow to senior housing and care providers. We'll hear more about that today. But before we get to that interview, I would like to take a moment to remind you about two of our events that were postponed due to COVID-19 and have now been rescheduled. DISH, an event that highlights culinary innovation in senior living, will be held on October 14, 2020. BUILD, which is an event dedicated to the future of senior living development, will be held the next day on October 15, 2020. Both events take place in Chicago. These are always special events, but this year in particular, we are looking forward to bringing people together and having conversations about the future that will be all the more important and valuable in light of COVID-19. More information about these events can be found at seniorhousingnews.com slash events. And now, here's my interview with Larry Gamina, CEO of Ohio Living. Larry Gamina, thanks for joining us on Transform. I know that Ohio Living is thick in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis. So I wanted to start our interview today by getting an update on the situation at hand with COVID-19. What are you currently seeing on the ground? And give us a picture of the state of infections and which communities are hit and maybe how many folks have recovered of this disease since you first started getting reported cases. Yeah, Tim, thanks for the opportunity to, to share our story here. And let me first attempt to set the stage in Ohio here. I, I'm coming to you from Columbus, Ohio, and, and smack dab in the middle of a state that contains about 11.6 million people. Uh, as of roughly about 3 p.m. yesterday on the 15th of April, according to the Department of Health, we have uh, 7,628 infected Ohioans with COVID-19. 2,237 of those have been hospitalized. And as of, again, yesterday at 3 p.m., we've had recorded 346 uh, expirations throughout the state. We have also, per the, the governor and Dr. Acton, who's the uh, director of the Ohio Department of Health, on Monday, there was an order Tuesday, earlier this week, saying that uh, we have to list um, those affected or infected who reside in assisted living and skilled nursing facilities throughout the state of Ohio. Uh, that list went live this morning. There's 700 infected residents uh, it, within throughout the state of Ohio. So that's where we stand at this point. 7,600 7, infected of those that the list went public today, 700 are residing in skilled or or assisted living communities throughout the state of Ohio. At Ohio Living, we had, I'll give you just a chronology of, of our preparation, which I'm real proud of, and how we've reacted to this, uh, this worldwide pandemic. On March 3rd, when we started hearing of cases uh, throughout the country, we, we, con- we 
took the initiative prior to the, the governor telling us to do so. We, we started limiting visitation in our in our 12 campus communities, and we began uh, at that point uh, taking temperatures of, of staff members who are coming to work and also for visitors. We actually at that point said that uh, put in some some uh, measure precautions with uh, visiting residents, uh, family members visiting a residence to stay, stay six feet apart and limit their visitation to 15 minutes. On March 9th, we then said, uh, obviously, at this point, you know, we started escalating in the state of Ohio. March 9th, we said no visitation throughout all of our campus communities, all 12 of them. On March 11th, uh, the governor said uh, you can limit visitation to one per day. So we're kind of in a quandary right there. But then then the 24 hours after the 11th, on the 12th, the governor said eliminate all visitation in, in any post-acute facility. So we, we kind of did that very, uh, very aggressively and, and proactively. But yet, that being said, on the 20th of March, we did, we were, I think, believe the first um, provider to uh, have a positive COVID-19 diagnosis. And that happened at Ohio Living Rocky Knoll, which is a life plan community of ours in the Akron, Ohio market. It's been in operation since the 60s. It's a great organism, great, great community. And uh, we unfortunately had one of our uh, therapists come on in who was, who was positive and, and uh, at that point infected uh, uh, some of our uh, short-term residents on our short-term rehab unit. So we then went into gear and communicated our the issue, uh, the, the positiveness, the positive case with our, our resident family members, our staff on that unit. And at that point, we went into really uh, preparing proactively all of our other 11 communities with uh, clustering of units in an attempt to learn from our experience up in at Ohio Living Rocky Knoll to uh, prepare ourselves throughout the ministry here at Ohio Living. That case did then escalate, and we've had increased uh, COVID-19 positive cases at Ohio Living Rocky Knoll. We then became very, very aggressive in saying that in the event it's not positive, we also classified uh, presumed positive residents. So we've clustered them. And beginning of April, Tim, we had we had four campuses com- affected where with either a positive COVID-19 diagnoses or presumed positives. And uh, that was about 53 residents at that point, again, either positive or presumed positive in four campus communities. And about 48 team members were our staff members were presumed positive or positive. Back at Rocky Knoll, those staff members have come to work, come back to work. We're actually right now admitting COVID-19 residents, uh, patients from our referring hospitals. We have uh, our team members are, are protected with personal protective equipment throughout the, the, uh, the organization, even though that's uh, it's tough to get these days, but we've been doing a very good job in, in securing and partnering with our vendors. So, Tim, that's a long answer, but that's where we stand at this point. The, those four campus communities now have been have, have shrunk down to two. So right now, we only have uh, two of our 12 campus communities that we continue to be acutely focused on with this pandemic. But as you know, we have asymptomatic people throughout the country and, and certainly throughout Ohio that uh, can uh, can spread this uh, the virus. Wow. We stand, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for such a comprehensive picture. And thanks for walking us through kind of the timeline of how all this happened. So it's it's interesting. So you are bringing in patients out of the hospital who have COVID-19 and you've have you designated basically one community that is sort of the we are we are taking on COVID-19 residents community. A great question, but no, we have not. We we have a footprint in 48 of the 88 counties, and, and we touch the lives of about 73,000 Ohioans a year at Ohio Living. 
you know, through 12 campus communities. And we have a very active home health, Medicare certified home health and hospice program uh, throughout the state. But no, we will promptly readmit our, obviously, our existing residents back to our communities, whether they're positive or not. And we have, uh, thanks to our, our chief nursing executive, Connie Tosman, who's just been a, a steady rock in this storm, who's been with us for, for uh, just under uh, just over 25 years, has, has done a, an amazing job in leading our clinicians to make sure that we can not only care for our own as they, got a, as, as they are ready to return home to our campuses, but yet for uh, hospitals that are attempting to, to discharge COVID-19 patients who need continuance to care, we're there for them. So we, we've prepared ourselves accordingly throughout all of our campus communities. So Tim, we do not have just one we, we need to make sure that we're prepped uh, throughout our entire ministry. Well, important so, to note, though, Tim, in the Columbus market, though, I'm sorry to interrupt you, important to note that in the Columbus market, we're, we're fortunately, and I'm knocking on wood here, we're not seeing the surge that, that we have envisioned. We have hospitals in the, in the greater Columbus market, you know, are 30, 35 percent occupied right now. So we're not seeing the surge, and, and we're certainly not seeing it throughout, you know, the most densely populated areas of the state. Thank God. That is that is very good to hear. That is that is good news. So when you bring a resident who was in the hospital with a COVID-19 diagnosis, when you bring them into your community, what sort of special precautions are you taking? I'm assuming there's probably um, a way to put them in a special wing or maybe put them in rooms that are, are a little bit farther away from some of the folks that don't have COVID-19. But yeah, what do you what do you do when you admit one of these residents? We have private rehab suites in our short-term stays units throughout our, our, our uh, organization here. And, and again, it's um, we, through the direction of our chief nursing officer, Connie Tostevin, you know, our, our team is equipped to safely care for these residents who are returning. You know, let me also, so Tim, yes, to answer, give me more detail to your question. They are segmented away from the, the rest of the, the residents. Any kind of equipment they need in terms of thermometers, it's all, it's all resident-specific. Uh, dedicated staff, the staff are gowned uh, head to toe and personal protective equipment. But you know, let me make mention here. One, you know, the, the scenario we've we've uh, come a long way in terms of building up our PPE stock because four weeks ago, I wouldn't have been as confident. In fact, I, I wrote an editorial out there because it was really uh, and and still is. It's a big hardship for some. Uh, small not-for-profit and for-profit providers that don't have access to personal protective equipment right now, but yet there's a, an order in Ohio that you cannot refuse an admission. But yet, you know, it's it's concerning. We got to make sure our first priority is to make sure that we can protect our existing residents and our and our team members first before we take a new admission. But when we do admit, we are making sure that we're we're doing it safely and providing that that care that he or she may need. I read that op-ed that you wrote, Larry, and that was, um, I remember it was, I think, dated on April 1st, so it's been a couple weeks since you you wrote that. But I remember the picture that you painted seemed pretty dire. I remember you had talked about Ohio Living's difficulties getting PPE for our listeners at home. That's personal protective equipment, things like masks, gowns, and gloves. It sounds like the picture has improved since you wrote that op-ed. So tell us what challenges you were seeing and how things have improved since then. Tim, as you read that, uh, you could, you could, uh, hopefully you could feel my emotion. And I, it's safe to say I was infuriated because there was a, a Sunday afternoon phone call that we had and a conference call with uh, the Ohio Department of Health. And I'm going back to our, our hot spot in Akron, Ohio at Ohio Living Rocky Knoll. 
And we were affirmed by the Department of Health and by Summit County Health Department that there was absolutely nothing we could have done up to prevent what took place. And, and we were doing everything very everything that we could do to mitigate the scenario, to protect our, uh, the affected resident and our team members. But yet we were losing sleep that we didn't have. And we're an organization of 3,000 team members. You know, our total revenue is about $240 million a year. We're, we're the largest not-for-profit provider of lifeline communities in the state of Ohio. And we were having a hard time getting personal protective equipment. So in that on that conference call, we asked, we know, we need, we need, uh, we need additional PPE to care for our residents. And, and there was kind of a, a silence on the line. It was clear that there were no resources out there from, from others. And later on that, that evening, uh, 10 o'clock on a Friday night, uh, Sunday evening, I saw that there was a, a load of PPE that was uh, being delivered to an area hospital here. And, and I just got infuriated because it's all of us that are in this, in this, uh, dealing with this pandemic and we need to protect every team member. So I wrote that editorial, uh, softened it up in the morning before I hit send, hit enter, and it worked. Uh, we had we had some school districts, uh, one in Delaware County, that called the executive director at Ohio Living Sarah Moore and said, "Hey, you know, we shut down our schools. We have PPE. We have thermometers. Please take them. We want to give them to you." So that has created a lot of attention, and uh, fortunately, we've benefited from that. And I hope, I hope, my intent that other not-for-profit or for-profit providers in the post-acute realm have benefited from that as well because, yes, hospitals are important, and I have a hospital background, but yet, you know, our team 24-7, 365, are dealing with uh, the most compromised uh, population in, in the country here as far as I'm concerned on a regular basis. So it's, it's, uh, it's worked. And we, and, and again, we, we've uh, increased our partnership. Uh, we've enhanced our partnerships with uh, organizations like Medline. We've uh, explored other other ways and to get PPE, and we've we've continued to build up our, our stockpile. And as you said, as I said earlier, we're not seeing, fortunately, the surge that we envisioned. And even though we've built up a good supply, as you know, if that surge comes, we can go through that very very quickly. Yeah, and that is good to hear. I'm glad that the picture has improved with regard to PPE. As we've talked today, I've heard you say a couple times, you know, this this idea that I think there needs to be more gratitude for the people that work in this industry because they are on the front lines, just like the hospital workers are. I've talked with providers in the past few days who have told me that they wished that there was more recognition of senior living's contribution to the fight against COVID-19. What do you hope that the rest of the country could see during all of this? To answer your question, yes, yes, and yes. We're a, um, a segment of this healthcare delivery system that is deserving of increased recognition for all the work that we do. And, and, I, and I've spent 30 years in the healthcare industry, the first half uh, being on the hospital side of the industry. And, and I just started in post-acute, went into acute, and then back to post-acute. And I, and I just absolutely love this side of the industry because we're, the recognition certainly needs to be enhanced. And, and here's an example. This week, you know, and, and I think the governor and Amy Acton, Dr. Acton, are doing a very good job here in Ohio. But yet, their directive to publish you know, those skilled providers and AL providers who have COVID-19 residents is another indication, in my view, of creating undue media attention to what we do, inappropriately so. Meaning that a, a, a reporter asked the governor early in the week, why just publish the nursing homes? And his response was, I agree with him. You know, if you were going to miss somebody in, in the nursing home, wouldn't you want to know if they're caring for a COVID-19 virus, virus patient? And his answer was, and the reporter said, yes. Well, I, in my opinion, 
not only should we publish, if we're going to publish the, the nursing, the skilled and assisted living providers, let's publish the hospitals too. So I think it's, yes, I, I think we need to create more attention into our, our value proposition in the delivery system. And Tim, I, I serve on the Leading Age Ohio board, and I, I, I'm humbled to serve on the Leading Age uh, National Board of Directors. And we're providing, you know, support to over 6,000 providers throughout the country. And, you know, what concerns me, what certainly concerns me right now is that I know that there are providers out there, for-profit and, and not-for-profit, that don't have the balance sheet strength of Ohio living. And the economic impact that this virus is creating on organizations on the post-acute side and the acute side is crippling. But yet, you know, we're caring for the most vulnerable pop segment of our population in Ohio and, again, throughout the country. And I, I, um, and we're doing a very good job. Let me, let, me, let me share something else with you. This is something innovative that, that I can send you right now, Tim, but this just released today. In partnership with, with National Church Residences, which is the largest age-restricted affordable housing provider throughout the country, uh, they're in, in 26 states in Puerto Rico, Ohio Living and Leading Age Ohio and a group of geriatricians in the central Ohio market called Central Ohio Geriatrics, the four of us came together and, and we just we had this idea three weeks ago to say, what can we do as four organizations to come together to proactively test residents in assisted living and skilled nursing operations through the greater Columbus market with the intent on if we can identify COVID-19 residents in these existing communities of 1,500 strong maybe we can treat in place and prevent the surge that's happening that could overwhelm the hospital system. Well, we're up and live. We're doing this right now. So what happens is that any provider in the greater Columbus market, and I could send this to you, Tim, in Franklin County and the surrounding peripheral counties, for-profit or not-for-profit, if they would like us to come on in and test their residents, they have one phone call to make. It, it comes in, and we launch a team of clinicians to come test that uh, test that those residents and we'll do that again with so that's a, it's a real innovative program that four organizations came together on and launched this so and again two two of whom are aging service providers leading age ohio is putting financial support behind this in central ohio geriatrics so this is something very innovative that uh, we're improving the lives of, of those in communities within the central ohio market that is innovative. Thanks for sharing that with me. How are you procuring the tests to test these residents? I'm assuming maybe there's a, a lab that you're working with? We are. We're, we're working with the Columbus uh, Health Department, the Ohio Department of Health, Franklin County Health Department, and then uh, OSU Wexner Medical Center is providing assisting in the, the tests as well. And I also want to put a plug in for the Columbus uh, Foundation that has uh, committed resources to to make this uh, idea become a reality but working with partners in the greater columbus market to you know to uh, coordinate this the testing of these uh, some of the most compromised uh, residents in ohio what's the end goal of the testing do you hope to get a picture of all of the maybe even the asymptomatic folks or the people that have had it or are you just targeting the people who are right now showing symptoms just to get a clear picture of who is positive? I think both. I think if you can get a clear picture of who's positive, and, and again, Ohio State University, is they're suiting us up with full protective equipment, fitted N95 masks, face shields, gowns, hair covering, shoe covers, and gloves. But I think if we can go into a community and identify who's positive, 
and who have symptoms, obviously, and confirmation of those symptoms that are that the virus is present, and the uh, asymptomatic people, individuals, we can provide, hopefully, enable that that entity to to um, to treat in place, to isolate, and again, whatever we can do to to prevent the hospitalization. Because right now, Tim, if we have a suspected resident we suspect is COVID-19 positive, what happens right now is they have to send out to the hospital to get tested or to a physician's office, which is, you know, incredibly inconvenient for the residents. So now we can go to them. Does this does this also apply for staff members who want to get tested? Because obviously I know that one of the big infection vectors for this disease, or at least it's been described to me anyway, is sometimes you have asymptomatic workers going between one community to another. They don't know that they're sick, but they've perhaps infected multiple people. So I'm curious, yeah, is, does this include uh, workers who want to get tested as well? This just includes the residents of the community. And there are so many residents in that area. I mean, we're probably talking about thousands of people. Are you worried that there aren't enough tests right now to test all of these people? Or do you feel confident that there's enough for everyone? Well, you know, through our partnership with Ohio Department of Health, Franklin County Health Department, and the Columbus Health Department and OSU, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But right now, we have the tests, and you know, we're, we're we've kicked off kicked off made this idea that surfaced three weeks ago a reality right now. So we have the ability to test in place right now, which I think is great. If we run out, we'll we'll deal with that. But at this point, we have I'm being told that we have adequate supply level of test kits. That is good news. Has Ohio Living itself begun testing its own? Residents, uh, obviously, you have some positives, so it sounds like some of your residents have taken the test, but has Ohio Living actually gone through its communities and tried to test every resident, as you've described? No, we have not, Tim, but two of our 12 communities fall into the footprint that I described of this uh, post-acute rapid response team. It's a post-acute regional rapid, rapid testing program, so two of our 12 communities Ohio Living Westminster Third, but that's right in the middle of Columbus, and Ohio Living Sarah Moore in Delaware County, they would fall into this program. So should we have a suspicion of residents being COVID-19 positive, we can, we can test our own. But at this point, no, we have not gone through the proactive measure of testing residents. What we have done is that any resident experiencing symptoms, we're considering through our, our CNO that they are presumed positive. Got it. Understood. So it sounds like, though, uh, one of Ohio Living's strategies to mitigate the challenges posed by COVID-19 is simply just linking up with other people who, other stakeholders in this industry who also want to undertake some of these efforts. I know that Ohio Living launched a physician services business just last month. I also know that you're a member of the Perennial Consortium, which is a sort of a Medicare Advantage collective. Have either of those helped you so far uh, mitigate the challenges posed by COVID-19? Yes and yes. You've done your homework, Tim. Yeah, we, we, we launched a new vertical line of business uh, last month, Ohio Living Physician Services, that includes uh, two physicians and, and nine nurse practitioners up in the northwest part of the state. And the vision there is to continue to move that throughout the rest of our, our, uh, our organization eventually. But that has helped because, again, you know, having that physician and MP support, if we can provide, and we are, providing more care at bedside, with the intent on mitigating or eliminating an, an, an emergent care episode, an emergency room or hospitalization. One, it's, it's in the best interest of the residents to skill in place. So we're building up that infrastructure. And again, through the perennial consortium, 
you know, we're launching two Medicare Advantage uh, special needs plans, one in Ohio, one in Colorado. And our partners are partnering with Lynn Katzman at Juniper Communities, uh, Camille Burke at uh, Christian Living Communities and Ally Align. So, you know, the, the, the four of us are, are launching this. And in Ohio, really proud to, to partner with four other organizations who are, who are launching this initiative as of July 1st, 2021. And that includes uh, GraceWorks Lutheran in the Dayton market. We have uh, McGregor up in the Cleveland market, Jennings up in the Cleveland market, and uh, Continuing Healthcare, which is a for-profit provider. So we're moving this forward. And again, with the intent is to whatever we can do to enhance the the care delivery at bedside for those who are serving to prevent a hospitalization, I think it makes it certainly makes a better sense for for the care of who we're serving and their families. So looking ahead, Larry, where where do you think we all go from here? And what do you think we can learn from the COVID-19 crisis? Obviously, this is a hard time. There's no doubt about that. And the industry is is fighting hard. But once we all come out of this, what do you think there is to learn? And And yeah, again, where do you see this leading? What are the next steps in your eyes? What's going to happen next, or what are you preparing for? Well, I, yeah, I, I hope I'm wrong, Tim. But but again, I, I envision that many providers throughout this country. I'm going to go big picture here. Are, are again don't have the balance sheet aren't aren't going to have the balance sheet strength to pull themselves out of this mess. You know, we have a we're caring for the most vulnerable population in our society. Our reimbursement system is just horrific, horrific, and that continues to challenge us. You know. You know, t- two things keep me up at night as CEO of this organization. One, you know, we have 11.6 million people live in Ohio, and we have the sixth most rapidly aging state in the country. So you may think, hey, Larry, you've got a, you've got a great organization. We have our care outcomes right now are stronger than they ever have been in 100 years. And I say that humbly, not pretentiously. We have a, a swell of demand coming at us, but yet our workforce isn't climbing commensurate with that demand. And so that keeps me up at night. And the reimbursement uh, from our, our state Medicaid program. We have growing Medicaid roles. If you look at the news, we have 22 million Americans right now on unemployment. Well, that's going to tax our Medicaid program. And our reimbursement with Medicare, it, it continues to be challenged. So I think what, in a, in a way for us to sustain ourselves and mitigate these pressures, yes, we're moving into a Medicare Advantage special needs plan, one primarily driven by whatever we can do to improve the care delivery at our bedside to prevent a more expensive onset in another segment of our delivery system. But on the same note, you know, we see a prevalence of Medicare Advantage plans in the marketplace. Well, you know, their margins in the insurance market are just incredibly strong, stronger than they ever have been. And what we're doing is we're enabling revenue leakage to come out of our respective missions onto the balance sheets of these insurance companies. So in a way to mitigate that or prevent that, uh, we'd like to keep some of that margin ourselves to sustain you know, the revenue pressures that we, we have in front of us. So long answer, Tim, sorry for the editorial comments here, but I hope going forward that our legislators and our, our respective communities in, in, a, in a larger sense will recognize the, further recognize the value proposition that we bring in a very expensive healthcare delivery system. And by highlighting the value proposition we make, we bring, we can enhance the care at the end of life and bend that cost curve, which I think is so critically important as, as we go forward as a society. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Larry Gamina, for joining us on Transform today. I think this has been a great interview, and I appreciate everything that you said. 
Tim, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, thanks for creating, giving us the attention that, with all due respect, our team members uh, so well deserve. Of course. Thanks, thank Larry. That concludes this episode of Transform. I'd like to again remind our listeners that we've rescheduled our two annual events, Dish and Build. Dish will be held on October 14, and Build will be held the next day on October 15. More information can be found at seniorhousingnews.com slash events. In the meantime, I hope all of our listeners stay safe and well, and thanks as always for listening.